From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. With dueling opinions from two liberal justices, the Supreme Court ruled that Andy Warhol violated the copyright of photographer Lynn Goldsmith by using her work to create 16 images of Prince. In a 7-2 vote, the justices rejected the arguments that the late artist transformed the photograph of Prince, making it fair use under federal copyright law. In the majority opinion, Justice Sonia Sotomayor pointed to the commercial use as a key factor in determining that Warhol hadn't engaged in fair use, something that echoed her questions in the oral arguments. That's up to what was made, what use was made of Orange Prince. It was a highly commercial use. Goldsmith also licensed her photographs to magazines, just as Warhol's estate did. So how is it that your 2006 license and Goldsmith's photographs do not share the same commercial purpose? In dissent, Justice Elena Kagan, joined by Chief Justice John Roberts, said, quote, If Warhol doesn't get credit for transformative copying, who will? Something the chief had expressed during the arguments. It's not just that Warhol has a different style. It's that unlike Goldsmith's photograph, Warhol sends a message about the depersonalization of modern culture and celebrity status. Joining me is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Muchen Rosenman. We've talked about this case many times, and I have to say that I was surprised by the verdict. Were you surprised? I was not surprised by the outcome. I was surprised by the 7-2 to two vote. During oral argument, you knew exactly how the chief justice was going to vote. He, on a couple occasions, made statements in the form of the question, but they weren't questions. They were simply expressing his views. How could you possibly not think this is fair use? And I'm paraphrasing. And after each of those instances, you could hear crickets. The rest of the court was dead silent. Several of the justices looked at their papers and shuffled their papers like they were embarrassed that their old uncle had said something. And one of the justices pointedly leaned over, looked down the panel with that look on his face as, what is it that you're smoking? So you sort of got a sense that you knew exactly what the chief justice was going to do. And you also sort of knew that his view was not going to prevail. He had a very, very deferential view, which is expressed in part Justice Kagan's dissent, essentially that if an artist says I'm doing something different, then fair use applies, which is, of course, nonsense. So I wasn't surprised by the outcome, but I was surprised that the majority cobbled together seven votes, which makes this opinion all the more significant because it was not a close call. 
So, Terry, for the majority, was the key factor in determining fair use the purpose of the works, the commercial use of Warhol's image, and the fact that both were used as magazine illustrations? That is certainly what the majority decision says. If you read a little bit more closely, there's this very interesting discussion of derivative works. One of the rights that a copyright gives an artist is the exclusive right to prepare derivative works based on the original work. And what Justice Sotomayor said was that the way that the law of transformative use has evolved, it has virtually swallowed up the concept and the exclusive right to prepare derivative works. And indeed, at one point, she says, we have to protect this exclusive right to prepare derivative works and prevent this transformative use test from swallowing this exclusive right to derivative work. So I think there was an element of concern about that, and that clearly comes through in several places. But the way it's expressed in the most part in the decision is through this notion of the textual words, is there a different purpose or character to the secondary use? So what's the test now? That's a great question. So keep in mind that we're talking about statutory language, the fair use statute, which has a four-factor test. The only part of that test that is at issue in this case is the first factor, although the courts toss off these words that all factors have to be considered. No one factor is more important than the other. The reality is that the first factor is always the most important factor. The first factor says, you know, in considering whether there's fair use, you have to consider, and I'm quoting here, the purpose and character of the use, including whether such use is of a commercial nature or is for nonprofit educational purposes. And so the battleground has been on this purpose and character of the use. And I see this case really as not a radical shift, but as a clarification of what that purpose and character of the secondary use means. And just so to Mayor starts a trope that will continue throughout the decision, she talks about the matter of degree. She says specifically the larger the difference, you know, the greater the degree, the more likely the first factor weighs in fair use. So the greater the change in purpose or character of use, the more likely it is going to be a fair use, and the smaller the difference in purpose or character, the less likely. And so what she has done, in my view, is set up a balancing test of sorts. First, you look at what is the difference in purpose, what is the difference in use. You consider how much of a difference that is from the original work. And then you have to do another thing, she says. If it's a commercial use, then you have to have even more significant of a difference than if it's a nonprofit education use, art criticism, something like that, you don't have to have as great a difference in purpose or character of the secondary use. And so I think that's what the test on the first factor is. And again, she says this, I'm not tossing out this transformative use concept, but And she says, transformativeness is a matter of degree. She again keeps coming back to this notion that it's not all or nothing. A district court judge has to look at the degree to which the purported difference and whether that is significant to overcome what is a straightforward commercial use, which is what's going on here. Justices Sotomayor and Kagan are both liberals, usually allies, but there was an unusually sharp tone in their opinions here. 
Justice Elena Kagan, joined by the Chief Justice, wrote the dissent. Justice Kagan wrote, the majority does not see it, and I mean that literally. And she gave this example of a magazine editor publishing an article about Prince, and an employee asks whether you want to use the Goldsmith photo or the Warhol portrait. And she says, quote, would you say that you don't really care that the employee is free to flip a coin? In the majority's view, you apparently would. What do you think of her analysis? So I've always thought, as a practicing lawyer advising clients with serious and significant monetary issues here, that it's a challenging role for us to decide what is fair use and what is not. It's just the nature of the concept has to be somewhat flexible, somewhat plastic to allow the cover odd situations that come up. And so, yes, there are a handful of of black letter cases where you can say one way or the other, you know, that this is fair use, this is not fair use. But the vast majority fall in the middle ground, and it's a very nuanced analysis. So that's always been true. And again, you have here Justice Kagan never practiced law in any real sense. She was Solicitor General, and she's only appeared in court as a practitioner six times, all of them in the Supreme Court, I might add, four of which Mm -hmm. she won. But prior to becoming Solicitor General, I'd never been in a courtroom. I was an academic. And I think that is something that's missing often from the court, this real-world practice component. And this is hard here. So you said it's unfair to say it's a flip of the coin. I mean, it's just not right. More to the point, I think her decision in many ways very intemperate and unfortunately draws then an intemperate response back from the majority decision. I mean, sort of unheard of. And I think you make a very good point, Jenny Boyant. They're usually allies and from the liberal wing of the court. You and I have discussed this in past copyright cases. You know, copyright doesn't seem to break down on some sort of partisan division lines. Here you have the chief justice, who's a moderate Republican appointee, and Justice Kagan, perceived to be a liberal, voting together, and and Justice Sotomayor, writing majority, supported by um, all of the other conservatives on the court, including arguably the most liberal, Judge Jackson. I mean, for years, copyright cases were dominated by Justice uh, Ginsburg and Justice Breyer, who were at opposite ends of the spectrum on copyright law, Justice Breyer believing in a very robust fair use, and Justice um, Ginsburg believing in a very robust protection for copyright. Yet, arguably, they were kindred cousins um, on most other cases. So copyright, really, you can't analyze in sort of a, a liberal versus conservative way. But well, what is interesting here is you have two of the justices who arguably are a slightly different socioeconomic situation throughout their lives versus all the others who are different. And some of the tone of Justice Kagan reflects that. I think this knee-jerk reaction that Chief Justice had and that Justice Kagan reflects that we've got to protect artists, we've got to protect creativity without actually thinking about what's going on in this case. You know, you saw this with Justice Ginsburg often and Justice Breyer, who were clearly two wealthiest of the justices, went to the opera, were patrons of the art. And here you have a distinct group of justices who did not grow up that way and did not live their lives that way. And taking a different approach, which is, you know, you've got a photographer here trying to earn a living and you're cheating her out of that. And there's even a line where she says, you could have taken a few dollars and sent it to uh, Lynn Goldsmith, the plaintiff photographer, out of all the money you're making off of publishing these Warhol prints. And I thought that was very revealing of sort of the behind the scenes, the way they were thinking of it. And I think that's a really important sub rosa narrative that's going on here. 
Well, do you agree with Justice Kagan and the chief that this decision will stifle creativity of every sort? No, absolutely not. It won't. I think this is a decision that's well-grounded in fair use principles exactly the opposite of what Justice Kagan says. I sort of expected it to come out this way. I didn't think there would be as strong a support for it. But we have seen this fair use first factor analysis run amok. The Carew case in the Second Circuit, where a photographer took some very creative photographs of Rastafarians in Jamaica, and a so-called artist, and I'm putting air quotes around artists, came along, doodled on them, you know, drew sunglasses on one hand, drew a guitar in the other, and sold them. And the Second Circuit said those doodles were transformative, and, and that was an abomination of uh, fair Astounding. use analysis. And that case is dead. Now, you want to know what the Warhol case does? That case is dead. That whole type of approach is dead. What we've done is get back to the textual analysis of what the words say, which is very important. And most important, something we haven't talked about yet, is this reasserted objective test with respect to purpose of use, which just rings so clearly here. It is the part that I think district court judges have to pay the most attention to. What Justice Sotomayor says is, quote here, a court should not attempt to evaluate the artistic significance of a particular work, which is exactly what Justice Kagan does. She goes on and on and on about how great Andy Warhol is. And I would have loved to see the first draft majority opinion because Justice Sotomayor, I'm convinced in a subsequent draft, goes in and rewrites the beginning of her decision to talk about how great Lynn Goldsmith is a photographer. And from a feminist approach, there were no women photographers doing rock and roll back in the 60s and 70s. She created a whole new genre of rock and roll photography and deserves credit for that. And it was an interesting, again, dueling approach to this case. But to get back to the subjective test, Justice Sotomayor goes on to say, nor does the subjective intent of the user, i.e. the artist, determine the purpose of the use. And this is the critical sentence that will get quoted over and over again in District of Portland. Whether the purpose and character of a use weighs in favor of fair use is an objective inquiry into what use was made. And what she's saying there is, I don't care what the artist says. I don't care that the artist says that it's transformed. I don't care what the judge thinks. Judges shouldn't be art critics in the first place. That goes back to the 1920s, that doctrine. And what we had seen in the Carew case was you know, reflective of this is artists coming in after the fact and concocting some story as to how they were trying to do something different, and therefore it was a transformative use. And what Justice Sotomayor and the overwhelming majority say here is, no, that's not the way. Let's look at this from a reasonable person perspective. And what is the objective purpose here? And in this case, they said the objective purpose of Lynn Goldsmith's photograph was to illustrate a magazine article about Prince's life. What was the objective purpose of the Warhol print? It was to illustrate a magazine article about Prince's life. Therefore, the purpose was the same, and therefore you lose on factor one. And if there's anything that makes fair use analysis simpler here in this decision, that's it. Because now we know exactly how to perform the analysis of what is the secondary purpose? What is the secondary use? What is the purpose of the secondary use? We now know how to do that. And once we have that, the test really kicks in just the same as it always has in past cases. Is that the same um, purpose and character of use as the original? And if so, you lose. No fair use. So I think that's really, really important here. 
so in a concurring opinion by Justice Neil Gorsuch, joined by Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, again, an unusual duo, left open the possibility that the Prince images could claim fair use protection in other contexts? It's absolutely true. I mean, what happened here? End of the day, you know, the, the client always knows, where do I stand? And the answer for the Warhol Foundation is you lost this case. On appeal, they waived any challenge to factor two, three, and four, which they'd lost below, and had bet the farm on factor one. They've now lost factor one. And oh, by the way, they early on conceded substantial similarity. So the court, in the majority opinion, says we affirmed the, the decision by the Second Circuit, the Court of Appeals here, the way the Second Circuit had approached this was we're going to grant summary judgment to Lynn Goldsmith, the plaintiff. It still has to go back to the district court for a determination of damages and attorney's fees and the like. But the Andy Warhol Foundation has now lost. What the concurring decision by Justice Gorsuch says is this. All the uh, hyperbole in the dissent by Justice Kagan can be ignored. At one point in her dissent, Justice Kagan, and she puts in illustrations of various artists through history painting uh, reclining nude women. They're all in the public domain, so it's not a copyright issue. And she says, so going forward, is no one allowed to paint uh, a woman in a reclining nude position because of this decision? And, and that's pure hyperbole. And uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Jackson call her out, and they say, I quote, worried about the fate of artists seeking to portray reclining nudes or papal authorities or authors hoping to build on classic literary themes. Worry not. The case does not call us on us to strike a balance between rewarding creators and enabling others to build on their work. And again, this is just a reiteration that the decision is in line with pre-existing fair use analysis. It simply clarifies how we make the determination as to what the purpose and character of the secondary use is and make it very hard for an artist, whoever is creating the secondary work, to make up some theory that they claim then is a transformative use. Instead, we look at taking an objective approach. And therefore, that's why I think this is not a radical change, but it is a very significant clarification. And I would go so far as to say this is arguably the most important copyright case of the 21st century, keeping in mind that the Supreme Court has not looked at fair use now since 1994, almost going on 30 years. What happens next in this case? So it'll go back to the district court, and the district court will have to determine how much Lynn Goldsmith should get by way of the infringement and whether or not she should get attorney's fees, which could be very significant. My guess is that because this is a really important case and there was a lot of uh, confusion as to what the law is, the district court would say, no, you don't get attorney's fees. This wasn't that sort of case. There were real doubts. Now we've got those doubts clarified. And, that, and so that the Andy Warhol Foundation actually did all of us a favor by forcing us to litigate this through. And I'll also say that based on the evidence I saw in the record on damages, I don't think she's going to get a lot of money either. I mean, in the neighborhood of between $1,000 and $10,000. Really? Um, yeah, because that's what these licenses were going for. There's a lot of evidence of record here. I think that's one of the points Justice Sotomayor was making is, why didn't you just toss her a few bucks? <laughs> you know, to get the rights to this when you're making all this money. I mean, it's a fair point. And you know what? You talk about creativity. Justice Kagan talks about creativity and the damage to creativity. The real damage has been this overbroad interpretation of fair use, which is preventing photographers and other original artists from getting their fair due. 
and having that money siphoned off by secondary uses, uh, this being a classic example of this. And, and I think this was necessary, and I think it remedies the flaw of the types of cases like Carew that had gone overboard. We'll see how the district courts do with the test. Thanks so much, Terry. That's Terrence Ross of Catanuchin Rosenman. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. TikTok will remain a place for free expression and will not be manipulated by any government. And TikTok backed up the testimony of its CEO, So Shu, by suing Montana, the first state to ban the popular app. The company says it doesn't share U.S. user data with the Chinese government and has taken substantial steps to protect the privacy and security of TikTok users. That's what we've been doing for the last two years, building what amounts to a firewall that seals off protected U.S. user data from unauthorized foreign access. TikTok has been here before and won. Federal courts block former President Donald Trump's executive order banning TikTok and the Chinese app WeChat back in 2020. Joining me is Jorge Marquez of the Warren Law Group. So one of the arguments that TikTok is making is that the ban violates free speech rights. So basically the argument goes that the ban goes to not just the users, because you're eliminating TikTok as a medium for the users to be able to post and express themselves pursuant to the First Amendment, but also TikTok. TikTok even makes the argument that they themselves have their own account. So you're removing TikTok as a forum, but you're also removing TikTok as a content provider. And because you're actually focusing on the speaker and because you're focusing on the content, you get to these questions of, is strict scrutiny going to apply? Strict scrutiny being the toughest form of judicial review. And does it sound like a prior restraint? Absolutely. There's definitely prior restraint with the way in which the ban is taking effect. So the ban is trying to definitely make sure that none of this content can even be provided. And you have a chilling effect from the Montana law. Another argument is that the ban is preempted by federal law. Now, in terms of the preemption, the federal government has the Department of Homeland Security, and it has its own cyber agencies. Right now, I think that Montana does not have the winning side of that question. However, if they are able to articulate a much more specific argument to their own state needs, they may be able to craft an argument as to how they may be able to be involved in that. Now, that still segues into the Commerce Clause issue and those state laws that are directed to legitimate local concerns, such as the cybersecurity of your residents, but have incidental effects on interstate commerce. You're trying to apply a local solution, but at the end of the day, TikTok has a national exposure. It is broad-based. If someone is in Montana, 
They can cross state lines. And what happens with the app's usage? So both of those issues are there. I do think that the preemption argument, TikTok makes a very valid point. There's a really interesting argument around the prohibition of a bill of attainder, not something that often comes up in ordinary conversation, but where a law punishes a party without a trial. So here there's been no proof, no proceeding showing that TikTok violates the privacy of Montana residents. So what you're raising is a very valid point. So number one, this bill of attainder, it is not that common. I think there's a reason why TikTok put that at the fourth point. TikTok makes the point of, and even cites the language from the governor, about how there was an initial interest of including other social media companies in it. However, they got singled out. And a lot of the concerns that the law brings, so for example, the law mentions issues on the contents of the video and they promulgate violence. Well, that's not just on TikTok. You could say that about many other social media platforms. So it still goes to the First Amendment issue, but TikTok does have a point. Why are you focusing on my platform when all these other social media platforms have many of the same issues? And TikTok in the complaint makes the point. And by the way, even if you included these other social media companies, you would still run into problems. I tend to agree with that. Unless the state can articulate why TikTok is so different. And this brings up a very crucial point. Right now, there is no evidence that TikTok is actually providing data and any information to the Chinese Communist Party. But that doesn't eliminate the concern that TikTok, if push comes to shove, may have to eventually give any data to the CCP. It is not enough for Montana to have a suspicion. The U.S. has a system of independent judicial courts that must take into account the evidence and standards. And that is a fundamental difference between the Chinese system and the U.S. system. There's a reason why Facebook and other companies cannot operate in China. But nevertheless, you have a Chinese company taking advantage of the legal framework in the U.S. to basically argue for the system in the U.S. It's an underlying theme as to what's happening with respect to this ban. How would Montana enforce the ban? Would they have people monitoring TikTok? So, June, as you know, I'm a lawyer. I'm not a (laughs) technician or an engineer, right? But from what I understand, the App Store is able to look at the IP address and basically limit the download from the state. Another, in theory, you could have someone that goes to the telecommunication towers in Montana and they're able to limit the access to those towers. So you don't have to be policing the individuals on TikTok. Of course, you get to questions about VPN. Right. And those are services that allow someone to bypass some of the restrictions that are in place. But again, is it practical? Can they actually coordinate all these different pieces together? The law is only as good as your enforcement mechanism. Does Montana have the infrastructure, the personnel to actually follow through with that? And the answer, you know, from my understanding is no. You require a coordinated effort among multiple parties, particularly at the federal level, to really be able to achieve those objectives. Senate Intelligence Committee Chair Mark Warner talked about the likelihood of federal courts overturning Montana's ban, and that's why it was essential for Congress to pass legislation. So what do you think about the likelihood of Montana's ban actually going into effect in January? The fact that the effective date is January 1, 2024, 
sort of indicates that they can see the writing on the wall, that this will most likely be struck down. So I do think that there was definitely some political posturing because of the acceptance that this was preempted by the federal government. You know, the state wants to make it seem, state politicians, they want their constituents to see that they're trying to do something about it. You know, right now, from what I'm seeing, I do think that the First Amendment issue by itself is sufficient for TikTok to prevail on this lawsuit. As long as the parent of a data company like this is Chinese, isn't there always going to be a problem? In the U.S., and let's not be naive, companies work alongside the U.S. government, and sometimes the U.S. government is on top of companies knowing full well what's happening. However, the government has a limited role. That is part of the U.S. culture. You go to China, the Chinese government, the CCP, is in control. The military responds to the CCP, not to the country. And you have a fundamental problem of what data sharing with a country is. With China, you have a law that says that if you are a Chinese company, you must share information. And there is a fundamental problem that manifests itself in this TikTok issue that is just pervasive throughout the relationships. And when you have a U.S. company saying, I am limited in the way that I can interact in China, I don't have the backing of the U.S. government to the same level that this Chinese company does. And by the way, not only that, the Chinese company actually has tools to go against the governments in the U.S. that I would not have within China. And that, I think, is the crucial problem at the origin. The fundamental distinction of having a Communist Party force companies doing multiple things, including providing data, as it is built into the system versus the U.S. system, which is much more apprehensive towards government involvement. At the end of the day, it does seem to be a problem that may not have any solution that's reconcilable. Thanks, Jorge. That's Jorge Marquez of the Warren Law Group. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.